play this game where you, know, you just hide. <laughs> I'll just over there. Where's Mel? <laughs> okay. And the Gospel reading may be found on page 1533 of the Church Bibles and on the screen. Jesus is telling another parable, the parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time came, approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, he will bring those wretched to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us together to be your people and we pray that you would help us this morning, that this story would take shape in our Amen. Um, this uh, is an interesting story, actually, to find it quite high up in the nation's favourite stories because it's one that's clearly quite a judgy story, isn't it? It's one in which judgment happens and people tend not to be fond of those sorts of stories. It kind of underlines the idea that the church is... Uh, it's sort of quite judgy, and it, it, it moves away from the idea that Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild, and still somehow in the manger. So a story like this is quite tough, and dare I say dangerous, because of, what, because of its potential. And this week, I was watching a discussion in which various philosophers and thinkers were asked this question. Which dangerous idea has the most potential to change the world? Now, there were two or three, one or two people passed on this question. Uh, one answered, uh, which is something quite absurd and un unreasonable at, at all. It was just too dangerous. Um, but Peter Hitchens, who you may love or hate, a bit of a Marmite character uh, in a lot of ways, but Peter Hitchens answered these words. 
The most dangerous, excuse me, the most dangerous idea in the world is the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died and rose from the dead. And when he was put, and all our responsibility, it turns the universe from meaningless chaos to a designed place where there is justice and hope. Therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope, because it alters us all. And if we reject it, it alters us all. It is incredibly dangerous, which is why so many people reject it. And I thought that was a really powerful, important idea, because in this parable, we have people who have the most dangerous idea in the world in their possession. And what are they doing with it? How is it altering them? How is it changing what's going on? Well, let's have a look. We'll have a look at what, so what, and now what. And the what is that God had established a nation that would represent him. This picture of the vineyard is taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 5, in which Israel is compared to this, to this wonderful vineyard. It's, it's got a landowner who is God. Um, Israel are the vineyard. They are supposed to bear fruit. Uh, the tenants in this story are the Jewish leaders, uh, the servants who are seated. The son is Jesus himself. And the new tenants are Gentiles and believing Jews. And this is a very powerful uh, story about how God had intended to show the world what he was like. The watchtower and the wall in verse 33 are the means of God's protection around the vineyard and the ripened grapes, that he wanted to look after what people produced, how they grew. The wine press is for stamping out the juice of grapes for making wine, and the farmer in the story is apparently away at the time of harvest and has rented the vineyard to these tenants. That's customary of the time, and he could expect, a farmer in these circumstances could expect up to half of the grapes as a payment for the use of the land. There's a little bit of uh, contrast or conflict, if you like, about why was he away for so long? Um, because it seems that the tenants have forgotten about the landowner, but we also know that a grapes harvest takes four or so years before it actually bears anything worth having. So you sort of get a real sense that this is rooted in um, a God who is patient and wants to uh, see what would happen. We read that the tenants, however, far put them back on course. And if you read Isaiah, 5, uh, Isaiah chapter 5 alone, you would see that they had uh, abused the poor. They bought up land to make themselves bigger and bigger houses where they, the people were marginalized in society, that God's justice, that God's benevolence, his kindness, his providence were not things that were shared among the community. Rather, it was a dog-eat-dog dog world, and the rich and the leaders of Israel were very much in the firing line in Isaiah. So there's a sense in which Jesus is bringing this story to life about who they are. What are they like? How, what have they become compared to what they could have been? And it comes quickly in a series of stories about what Jesus finds when he encounters the leadership of Jerusalem and Israel. 
We, we see that there is faithless leadership, that a fig tree bears no fruit. He tells them a parable about two sons, one who was obedient, one who was disobedient, and the parable of the wedding banquet where somebody turns up and they're just not dressed properly. They are crashing the wedding and they get thrown out. There's a real sense in which Jesus is engaging with the lead in what they have done. And then when we read further through the story, we see that Jesus quotes Psalm 118, reminding them that there will be a, a death. They will reject him. And he, the, build, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they realize that he is talking about them. And the horrible, the horrible force of what Jesus thinks of them is, is laid out, which is why it's curious that it's such a popular story. Because nobody seems to come out of it very well. It's a, it's, it's quite, it's, it's a turning point, if you like, in Jesus' week in, um, in, in the city. And there are some problems, aren't there, to address. Perhaps the Jewish leaders have assumed that God, having been absent for so long, has forgotten about them and has left them, off, left them to get on with it. Perhaps they have held on to what was so important to them without realizing that it was part of a bigger jigsaw, a bigger picture, a bigger tapestry in which they had a bigger part to play, that they were part of his ours and nobody can take it from us. And in an occupied country where there's the feeling of threat from a sort of a marauding empire that tells you what you can and can't do, what you can and can't say, then maybe that was a, a reasonable thing too. So there's some resonances um, between Israel then and perhaps the church today. Well, we see that this picture, um, I pinched these off as some, a slideshow on YouTube. It's quite good, actually. Um, vineyard, though, is supposed to be the picture of God's activity in the world. Is, this vineyard was planted to bear fruit and be a benefit and a blessing to the people around it, not least the people in Israel. So this vineyard image was one in which actually it was corrupt at the top and the poor, spat upon, sat upon and ratted on, were just enjoying nothing. They, do, they knew nothing about God's goodness towards them. And Isaiah's criticisms of Israel point to a community that should have been transforming the world, but as I've just said, were wrapped up in their own world. In fact, worse than that, they were starting to craft their own idols. In the absence of, of a God who seemed to have something to say, they decided to do their own thing. Uh, all of every, everything that God had given them for a righteousness of their own making, their own design. It's very powerful. How does, it make that, how does that make us feel about what, what God has called us to be? What is our righteousness based upon? How do we feel, or believe rather, uh, that we have been declared God's people? The, sent, the servants being sent show that God, instead of being absent, repeatedly appealed to the tenant's better nature that his word continued to come to them in their context, in their situation, and people will continue to say God's things to them. And God was patient with them. If this is a story about judgment and God being quite firm, we have to think, how long has he put up with this? 
How long will he see people tortured or how long will he see people marginalized for the sake of a few? So it's a story about God's patience, but it's also a story about there's, a, there's, an end, there's an end to this. Where will it end? How will it end for these people? So we discover God is being trying to be gracious, but also we find he has to step in. In verse 40, with, this sto- with, with Jesus' question, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he will do to those tenants? What do you think God will do? He is appealing to their conscience, their understanding of God, their understanding of who they are, and their realisation of how far they are from where they should be. Quite a powerful question, actually, isn't it? A dangerous question, because they have to admit. They have to admit that this is us. This is us. And the story blames directly them. They realise that Jesus is embarrassing them. He's called them out on what they're like. He said to them, you are those, he's painted a picture in which they are the offenders. That's quite tough. Did we, did they bless and give grace to people around them? Are they spreading the good news of how to live in God's way? Are they being, are they challenging and and being gracious to people around them or are they saying, Okay, sanctified hanging around it is. Blames this, this story blames them for failure. It's hard to live with failure. It's hard to live with failure. And the Gospels tell us that Pharisees and leaders, some repented. The story of Nicodemus was of a man who knew about what Jesus was like and said, I want better than this. It's not the end, but it's a judgment on the leadership for what they've done so far. They're also aware that Jesus is more popular than they are. The people at the end we read of this parable, the people realize, think that Jesus is a prophet. They've never said that about the Jewish leadership. They've never said they're prophetic. They've never said, they've never, it's never crossed their mind that the Pharisees and scribes were prophets. And here comes this one man, and he is definitely from God. There's a sense in which who are these people and, and, how, and how they've been put in the shade by the reality of what God has brought to them, to, to them in Jesus Christ. They're also challenged theologically because God has clearly sent his son. And in this parable, the son is the son of the landowner. And Jesus is saying, I am the son. And, and, and they realize that if the landowner is God, then Jesus is the son. And if Jesus is claiming to be the son of the landowner, then what God is really like, how much God is prepared to do. And He's pushing them. He's pushing them. This is parts of this story are blasphemous to them. Just too big an idea that God would do that. And then Jesus points to what will happen in the future. But in respective of what they do to him, he will become the cornerstone of a renewed work. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then he talks about them being removed and a new people who live in and under Christ. Believing Jews and Gentiles. That thought alone would have been horrifying. Some Jewish priests would wake up in the morning and say, thank God, I am not a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. 
to be told that the kingdom was going to be given, given to Gentiles, that Gentiles would be coming in, was an anathema for them. They were not God's people. So Jesus is really pushing their buttons, which is why he's so dangerous. And that important image from the Psalms, that they will, they will try and overthrow him, but that will be the basis on which God does his new work and plants a new vineyard, a new place, a new way of doing things. Well, at the moment. <laughs> what are we to make of all this? Well, this is good news. It's good news for us. Because we're, we're, we're those people. We're those people now. We're not the Jewish leadership. We're not the ones, hopefully, who've held on. There are warnings there, but we're not those people. So let's have a look at a couple of things. God is, look, first of all, if you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet a Christian, let's remind ourselves that God is not remote and uninteresting, uh, uninterested in what people do with the life he gives them. He calls it to account. He's given us life for a purpose. He's designed us and given us gifts and abilities in different ways because he wants to see what we would do with it. He is inextricably interested in what we do. Tonight, just as a teaser, we're looking at the letter to Thyatira and we're reminded Jesus knows and searches our hearts and minds. He wants to know how we're getting on, how we're using the life we've given because life is a precious gift. It's not to be wasted. It's not to be squandered. And that's important. And that's the mistake that they make in verse 35, that they, they seem to infer that if we kill the son, we will inherit the, the vineyard. They've assumed the landowner is gone and absent. And yet actually, it's what they've done. And behind that idea is the idea that heaven is where you go, somewhere up in the sky when you die, and that the earth is actually not part of the picture at all. Do you ever think about that? Am I going to heaven or am I going to stay in the renewed earth? Am I being prepared for the renewed creation or am I going to be sitting on cloud nine or eight and a half at least? And actually, that's the pattern, isn't it? That's the picture that we get in the Bible. The Bible tells us that God is returning to an earth which he is restoring because he made it for himself to be shared with his people and although we've messed it up, he's going to come and put it all straight. The earth is very much part of his plan, and we have a place in it. At the end, at the end of the Bible, the bit, you know, right, at the, right at the end, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Sorry about that, sailors. Then I, John, saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. It's a picture of the end. He's kind of just forgotten about. It's something that God, through the power of the cross, has the ability to restore. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about how all of creation just groaning, waiting for the children of God to take up their inheritance. These waiting, creation itself is waiting for that day when God's people live and breathe amongst the earth as it should have been. What a glorious picture. So one thing is that God is not remote. He's in, intrinsically interested in what we do because it's part of his restoration plan. If you don't see yourself in restoration work, you are in restoration work. People, places, things around us, the world around us. 
are all things that God is looking to restore. And if you knew that the space that you were inhabiting now would one day become part of a new earth, how might we look at it differently? If you knew that people around you had the potential to be part of a new creation, how might we treat them differently? If we thought that God wanted them to be with us, how might we speak to them? How might we uh, minister to them? It's very hard. It's very challenging. It's very challenging stuff. But those are questions, aren't they? And if, our question, if we are Christians, we've been walking with God's ability that is handed over. It's now been handed over to a group of tenants who, in my translation, will render to him the fruits in their season. Will offer to God the fruit of their labors. They will believe and they will live out the most dangerous idea to change the world. That new kingdom on earth, that new big vineyard, is composed of us and believing Jews, and it's the cornerstone of Christ's work. We need to be founded based on him. Find our feet upon him, the rock. And this is the center of God's thinking. It should be the center of our thinking. That Jesus came to restore these things. Sorry, I'm about to cough. (coughs) But what we do is founded on Christ, the power of the cross. That there is something beyond, there is something more about who we are. Something yet to be discovered, and sometimes something yet to be seen. In which God is shaping us to do his things. This year is the year of vocation. It's a year to think about what is God calling to me, me, me to do? What is the passion? That... And when we allow that to happen, we allow God's love and God's grace to color in our relationships. And to shade the things we do in such a beautiful uh, way that we can see his hand at work. And that people around us will see his hands at work. And it makes us think, hopefully, about the people that we live and work amongst. Because they're going to need to be prepared. Unlike the Jewish leadership, they're going to be prepared to be obedient. And they're going to need to do things which sometimes they might find embarrassing or difficult. They're going to need to be humble going to be prepared to say, you know what, I, I might be wrong about that. But because of God, I want to see something better happen instead. They're going to be prepared to allow that, that, that resurrection life to take shape in us, putting to death the things that are no good to us, and bringing out the life that is different and better and richer and fuller. We know to be courageous and obedient and not proud. We're going to cling to Christ's words and his teaching, not be shaped by the world because there's too much of that in everybody's life. We're going to be able to transform not, maybe not the whole world, maybe meet, but there will be an example of what it is to meet with somebody who knows God, who's been changed by Jesus Christ. And these people will always speak truth and they will always love those people outside the kingdom just as much as we love those who are in. Those people will give God the fruit that he is due. Those people will bear fruit. They will be looking for opportunities to produce the fruit, to see what God might do. It's our reason for being here. It's our reason for being on earth. And it's the most dangerous idea in the world. But it should change us all.
Shall we pray?